0: Welcome to the Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, my goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices. Instead, look for the processes and the questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. I'm Will Patch, Enrollment Marketing Leader at Niche, and my guest today is Angela Brown. Angela will be joining Niche July 5th to help serve PK through 12 schools. She's currently the Director of Marketing and Communications at Flint Hills School, where she served for seven years. For that, she spent 10 years focused on B2B Marketing and Communications for top law firms, IT consulting, digital marketing agencies, and a leading commercial real estate analytics company. She's also a member of the American Marketing Association, National Association for Independent Schools, and the Association of Independent Schools of Greater Washington, and serves on the advisory board for the Marcom Society, an exclusive online community for independent school marketing and communications professionals. In December 2020, she served as the judge for the Brilliance Awards, which honor marketing and communications work from PK through 12 private schools around the world. Welcome, thanks for making time to chat today.
1: Of course, thanks for having me Will.
0: Well I'm gonna start off with two questions here that I ask everybody. So first up, what's something you tried that didn't work and what did you learn from that?
1: I love this question. Um, So there are two things that I wanna touch on and Mm -hmm. the first is because I know that there's an increasing number of school marketers who are coming from outside of education and Mm -hmm. so It's very important to know that corporate culture and school culture are very different. When I first started at Flint Hill, I think I was so full of ideas and there was so much low-hanging fruit that I probably came on a little strong. And I went immediately into idea mode and instruction mode. And I'm not someone who normally has much of an ego, but I felt so strongly about the things that I knew we could do right away. I think I probably could have dialed things back with my approach a bit. I think when you're going into a role where there are opportunities and there's a need for you to be able to execute right away, it's still important for you to find that time to stop and listen and get your fingers on the pulse of the institution. That was a big lesson. And and also just being careful with language. You know, there were a lot of corporate terms that I was using, like sales and customer service and branding. Even though there are some parallels between those two environments, those are words that can be a little cringy <laughs> for, mm-hmm. for career educators. Um, you know yeah. if you're someone who's super passionate about education and changing lives and shaping minds, you don't necessarily want to think about that calling through the lens of business jargon, right? And so using the right language is something that I think is is really important and was a really big lesson for me. and just taking some time to really, understand the culture, take a step back and recognize that there are a lot of differences and there's a need for a different approach. The second thing that I I definitely learned is that there was a bit of a crash course in the importance of branding in this role Mm -hmm. because the stakes are so much higher than they have been in other industries that I've worked in. So when you're working for an AMLA 100 law firm or top 100 law firm, you're not fighting for clients in the same way that schools have to fight for students every year. You know, businesses need the services that you provide and branding is something that everyone kind of talks about and you might redo your website every few years, get some new headshots for your attorneys, but it doesn't have the same significant impact that it can in an industry where people are making really emotional decisions, connecting to the decisions that they're making in such an emotional way. And so with schools, we're so similar on the surface. And there's a lot of me tooing that kind of happens from a marketing perspective. Mm-hmm. I just made up a word. Um, <laughs> <which> <laughs> we'll
0: is, add to the dictionary.
1: <laughs> I, I love it. Let's, let's throw it in the dictionary, the marketing dictionary. But that doesn't help or serve the audiences that we're trying to connect to. They're making this huge decision, whether they're looking at a public school and trying to decide where to live, or they're looking at private schools, parochial schools. So they really need us to help them see the meaningful differences between institutions And so a mistake that I I definitely made early on in my role, particularly coming into a situation where the marketing function was a bit new and there was a lot of education needed on that front, is that with us being a young school in a market that has a high concentration of competition, the East Coast has one of the highest concentrations of independent schools in the country, we've had to really work on changing the narrative in the market for our program. Early on, there was this idea that if we just looked and sounded like our peer schools, we would be perceived the same way. But there's a really funny thing that happens when your external message and your internal experience don't match. (laughs) And so that was a big lesson for me and really others about the importance of doing the work to find out who we really were and lean into that. More. Mm -hmm. And so, actually, in the 2019 2020 school year, we went through a comprehensive rebranding process. And I I use the word comprehensive very intentionally because I think a lot of the time in schools, we think about branding as an updated logo or website Mm -hmm. refresh. And this was really like therapy for the school where we did a lot of Mm -hmm. introspection. We, you know, did a lot of surveying and a really deep dive into understanding for better or for worse, who we were. So we had some really fantastic takeaways that were very actionable in terms of how we talk about the school, the photography that we use, the visuals that we use, the the way that we hire our employees, you know, which mm-hmm. really operationalize the brand. And even though we're just getting started on this because the pandemic put a little bit of a hold on our ability to fully execute it, when you have this really great understanding of your institution's identity, it just makes everything much easier. So mm-hmm. you go from chasing your peer schools to having the space to make decisions that make the most sense for you and can help you target the families that will be happiest with you and that was a huge lesson that I think is is tough for schools but getting to that place where you can confidently say we're not the right school for every family and every student and that's okay is really important work to do
0: that always surprises me when people want oh well we'll just do what everybody else is doing and, and that'll make us successful right that just muddies the water doesn't it I like that idea, too, of rebranding as therapy. So how did you have, (laughs) it's kind of like you have this identity crisis. Are, Are we who we think we are? Who all did you involve in that process?
1: So what I have found to be extremely important in work like that is to do some things broad, but have the decisions be made with a very small it's the only way that you can get things done and that you can actually stick to the timeline that you, that you set out at the beginning of the work. Earlier in the process, we did a really large community-wide survey where we surveyed current families, uh, people who went through our admission process and didn't enroll, okay. alumni, past parents, faculty, staff, our upper school students, We really tried to go broad and deep to start to understand some of the core themes and strengths that were associated with the school, as well as a series of work sessions with a slightly smaller group, about 20 people per work session, that included some faculty and staff, trustees, leadership team members. We tried to have a a broad range of voices there as well, a couple of parents. But when it came down to actually making decisions and stewarding the process along We had a group of people that we referred to as our core four and that was me our assistant head of school for institutional advancement Mm -hmm. our director of enrollment management and financial aid and our head of school and one of the very intentional decisions that we made early on was our head of school had to be the driver for the process not me we did not Mm -hmm. want people to see this as a marketing exercise we wanted them to see it as an institutional exercise and so making him the voice and the leader of the process was really, really important. So keeping the decision making group really tight was extremely important.
0: You have to have buy-in at the top and making them the champion. That's that's a different approach than I usually see. And that I'm I'm glad that worked out well. What are some practices you use to brainstorm and bring new ideas into your work?
1: So I have always been an avid reader. I love to look at ideas from both inside of the industry that I'm in and outside and think about Mm -hmm. how they can be applied to the work that I'm doing at the time. One thing that I've definitely noticed is that higher ed tends to be ahead of PK-12 or K-12 in Mm -hmm. in a lot of marketing work and, and work related to recruitment. And so I've, over the years, done a lot of reading and listening to higher ed marketing blogs and podcasts just to try to generate ideas and think about things that are happening in that vertical that could be applied K-12. I also really love attending industry conferences and can't wait to do that in person again, mostly because I love people. But also, you know, the, it, that relationship building that happens in, in those environments is so special and so important. So even beyond the professional development aspect, it's just really, really great to have those opportunities to forge meaningful relationships in an industry that I found people share ideas and, and strategies more freely than I've ever experienced. And Mm -hmm. there's so much collaboration that it's, it's just a really special industry to be in. And so when I'm coming up with ideas, though, either alone or with a colleague or in a group, one thing that I have found to be very helpful, particularly working in an environment where we'll brainstorm a list of 20 things, and then we want to go do them all, (laughs) Um, is that it's important to have a framework for ranking those ideas and prioritizing them. So this is something that goes back to my agency days. There's this scoring model called the ICE scoring model, and ICE stands for Impact, Confidence, and Ease. And basically what you do is you look at each idea and on a scale of one to 10, you say, what's the potential impact of this idea? How much confidence do we have that it will work? And how easy is it to do based on resource constraints and timing and and all of the things that can usually impact your ability to execute an idea. And I I think it's especially helpful with small teams, or if you're a team of one, being able to actually narrow down the list is something that's just huge. It's it's really important. So that's typically the approach that I take.
0: Yeah, especially when so many people are one person teams with a quarter of the budget they need. You had several full careers before coming into to education. <laughs> uh, I mean, you have just tremendous experiences. How did you make that transition from agencies and law firms into education?
1: Sure. So my transition to education happened completely by accident.
0: I think the best transitions do, right? They
1: are. And it, I, looking back on my career, that's almost how everything has happened. It's very mm-hmm. nonlinear. I actually had a recruiter friend of mine who I had reached out to when I was in my, my previous position. And I just said, hey, you know, I'm looking for something that is meaningful. You know, I've spent a lot of work working in industries that are very bottom line driven. And, and that's true for schools as well. You know, you do need to generate revenue if you're in a, a revenue generating um, or tuition based environment. But I was really in a place where I wanted to do work that I believed made a difference. I reached out to my friend and she said, you know what, I have this amazing opportunity that I think would be perfect for you. If you like the job description, I will connect you with the recruiter on my team who's working on the search and we'll go from there. So I reviewed the position description and it, it seemed really interesting. It was a good combination of the skills that I had developed and all of the different, you know, roles that I that I'd had up to that point. And so I went through the application process and things just kind of went from there. I have really taken something from every industry that I've worked in. And so working with lawyers helped me with detail orientation. Agency work gave me hands-on experience in everything from digital marketing, analytics, and consulting to even just getting comfortable with public speaking and presenting complex information in ways that could be easily understood because you're Mm -hmm. teaching clients and you're giving presentations and sharing ideas. So all of that really prepared me to make a seamless transition to the actions that are involved in the role, the strategy, the sort of strategic thinking that's required in this role. And, you know, being a director of of Marcom in independent schools usually requires you to be a generalist. And so having the opportunities to get my hands dirty in a lot of different disciplines was extremely helpful. And I would say people with similar backgrounds would be most successful in this role for that reason.
0: I think for the most part too, you have very different cycles, right? That
1: schools (laughs) start in the fall.
0: And so you're working with a family for a year or two, maybe more for a start date. Whereas I'm assuming anyway with a law firm or or other agencies, you know, okay. So if someone doesn't sign up or, or contract you today, well, there's, five other people over the next couple of weeks.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the cycle of making decisions is very different, but I guess in some ways there are some similarities and that you have your repeat clients, just like you have the families that re-enroll every year. Mm -hmm. And then you, you have to go out and do some business development and continuously Mm -hmm. keep that pipeline very robust and moving. So there, there are some things that are a little bit similar, um, the, the revenue piece of it is definitely <laughs> different in terms of scale, but it's, it's interesting for sure.
0: What are some lessons that schools can take away from the agency world, from the other side of the table to adapt to their small staff, their small budget that'll help them do more with less?
1: I would say one of the biggest things is that in the agency world, the most valuable employees are billable. And so you have to be organized. You have to use your time very wisely. So if you don't have good systems in place for project management and intake in a school, things get really messy really fast. And so one of the things that I found, even in my position at Flint Hill when I first started, was that we did not have good systems in place for managing the demands that were being placed on our team. Everything Mm -hmm. was happening in email. I tried to find opportunities to kind of operationalize those requests. And this isn't something that has to be expensive or a heavy lift. You know, in our office, we use a simple Google form that's modeled after a creative brief that is required. If you, mm-hmm. if you would like to have a project completed by our team, that requires more than a day, essentially, of work you have to complete this form. And a notification goes to our full team. So everyone sees it. And then it gets forwarded into Trello, which is the project management system that we Mm -hmm. use, which is very reasonably priced. You can use it by seat. If you have a small team, you can just buy a license for yourself. And it's still very useful in terms of visualizing your projects, integrating with a lot of tools that, that many people in this position use, things like Google Drive, MailChimp. There are a lot of really great integrations. And it helps people to understand, to that they're not just sending things into a vacuum, you know, when they, when they reach out to your team. And it also helps them to be more thoughtful about what they're sending to you and why. Because we ask questions like, who's the audience for this? You know, that that is something that's useful for everyone to think about, not just the people on the marketing or, or the admissions teams. You know, Everyone needs to start to think through, mm-hmm. what are we trying to do? Who is this for? What does this need to look like? Is my deadline realistic? And mm-hmm. so we're front-loading a lot of the conversations that were happening in meetings through the form. And then by the time you actually sit down to meet, you can jump right to the work. So that also saves you a lot of time. So I truly would say finding ways to operationalize the requests that are coming to your office will make everything easier for everyone Mm -hmm. um, and also give you some historical documentation that you can refer back to for things that recur. You know, the the great thing about a school year is that you get a fresh start every year and there's a relatively clear end (laughs) at the end of every year. Having that historical reference in a centralized location is also very useful.
0: That's great advice. Is there any great resource you found of where people can kind of get started learning about project management?
1: Oh boy, that's a great question. There's a certification you can get, the project management professional certification. There's a website for that that does have some good resources on just general, you know, if you don't want to go through the full program, Mm -hmm. some tips and tools that you can use to keep yourself organized. There's also a book that I love, and I can't remember the author's name, but the book is called "Getting Things Done," and it's a book that I actually read when I got my first job. I won't say how long ago, <laughs> but my first job out of college, when I was just trying to learn the basics of how to manage all of the requests that that were coming across my desk, because I, I found that you know even if you go through a full formal education process, executive functioning skills are, and management skills are not always things that are taught. And so you yeah. can get all the way through college and still not necessarily understand what are the best ways to manage my time? What are the best tools that I can use? And some of that comes with experimentation, but some of it is also readily available for you in a few solid books and on the internet. So I would highly recommend that book and I'm also a huge fan of Evernote in terms of keeping myself organized personally. I've been an Evernote user, I think, if not since its inception, um not long after.
0: Great advice and that's something I think everybody regardless of position, regardless of what type of institution you're at, keeping organized, having the right tools, you know, there's a lot you can do with some free resources, but sometimes you just need a good piece of software. Absolutely how are you crafting messages and materials that might pique the interest of students and get the buy-in from parents? I know a lot of times on, on the PK through 12, it's kind of flipped that we think of, okay, everything's got to be to the, to the parents. They're the ones making the final decision. Of course, I would say in most cases, <laughs> what are some things you can do to kind of get the students to advocate for you?
1: That's a phenomenal question, and I think it's something that's very timely because Mm -hmm. there's a bit of buzz that's sort of happening around that question in schools now where people are realizing, to your point, that it's not just about the parents. And so we've started to really look at this recently at Flint Hill, and even from a resource standpoint, there's a lot of resources about outreach to parents, not a lot of discussion about students, and it's particularly hard with elementary age students. Because there aren't as many avenues to connect with them, mm-hmm. and so, and we're also seeing, particularly with our most recent admission cycle, that younger and younger kids are being given agency in that decision. You know, mm-hmm. we have parents of five and six-year-olds who are saying, "Well, where do you want to go?" Uh, and that's no. that's different from from what was happening even a couple of years ago. So you have to solve for reaching out to older kids who are high school age, the kids in the middle, and then the really little ones who don't have access to the same channels that they do when when they're older. One thing that we've really been focused on, even though there's been a little bit of controversial buzz uh, around these as as a tool, is persona development. We did a nice range of personas when we went through our branding exercise, including one for an incoming ninth grader, because that's a huge entry point for us. Even though there are some, some pros and cons with, with persona development, I think one of the big concerns right now is if you don't develop personas in a way that's very grounded in research, you're making a lot of assumptions that may not be correct. And there's a lot of room for bias. And so that's something that you want to really watch for. But I do believe going through the exercise of thinking about your audiences as human beings, looking both demographically and psychographically at who they are and how that translates into how you need to speak to them is important. That's something that I think everyone should be doing all the time. And you should refine them because the way that people make purchase decisions change and people change. And so it's not something you can set and forget. But to go back to the question, I think you really need a dual and yet complementary approach. And so when you're doing this persona development exercise, you have to think about what are the concerns about changing schools that an eighth grader has compared to their parents. They're worried about very different things. They want to know, am I going to make friends? Will I find activities that I want to be a part of? Will I have the same opportunities at a private school versus a large public? Or if i'm going from private school to public school you know well yeah. i how will that transition go will i thrive in a larger environment and and parents have some overlap with that but i think they tend to be a little bit more concerned with things like the academics and you know at that mm-hmm. point they're very much looking ahead to college with the little ones the social emotional piece is definitely a big one even if they don't realize it you know i think every kid at every age is worried about making friends and fitting in and so you have to think about your content and your outreach through the lenses of the, the pain points that they have in those age groups. And so now looking forward, we're going to create personas for our younger entry points because we think it's important. And tactically, we've started to talk about expanding our social media outreach and website content to include things that resonate with students in addition to parents So things that showcase a little bit more about the life of the school from that perspective. So it's not just academics and co-curricular offerings, but a little bit more information about the student experience. One of the things we've talked about is having a microsite that kind of pulls that out all together. So if you're 12 or 13, you don't have to come through all of this other stuff that's not necessarily as important to you to just get to the meat of. What's it like to be a Husky, you know, in first grade, fifth grade, eighth grade, 10th grade, and also doing some student specific events. You know, we've seen a real need for that coming off of this, you know, completely virtual environment in the last year and looking ahead to next year where we're doing more hybrid events, having more student specific events where it's not just coming in and touring the building and hearing about curriculum, it's more about community building and peer-to-peer networking and actually Mm -hmm. meeting the kids who could be your friends and, and matching people based on interests and things like that to just come and get the experience of what it's like to hang out with these kids and be around this community. Those are some of the things that we've talked about. There are some things that we sort of introduced in the last couple of years for people who are further along in the process. Like we have a coloring book that our graphic designer created for lower school students that has mm-hmm. our mascot and some different scenes around campus and There's a page that asks them to draw, like, what are you most excited about about Flint Hill? You know, some really sweet things like that. For uh, our older students, we've introduced more student voices into our social media outreach and into some of the videos that we have in our workflows. We've done a lot Mm -hmm. of that. But I also think we need to find ways to start that process earlier, you know, to go back to what we're doing with the website and what we're doing in more of that awareness stage, both for students and parents. It's a big conversation to have. It's a really a big conversation to have. But I think starting with going all the way back to just as we do with parents, what's the profile for this type of student for this entry point? And what are their mm-hmm. concerns? What are the channels that they're using? Where can we find these people and make those connections is, is a great place to start.
0: Yeah. I'm sure it's tough to tease out too. What do they really care about and what will they tell you they care about?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, your current students are a great place to go when you have questions Mm -hmm. about some of these things. You know, we regularly try to talk to, particularly in high school, our our current students, our ambassadors about, you know, what are some of the things that you guys are interested in where are you going for information what would have been helpful to you as you were going through the process but but you're right they don't always want to tell you right. <laughs> so you have to be you have to be very careful with that
0: yeah when you're talking about developing personas i'm sure that there's a lot of schools out there that maybe you've heard it but you know I, i'm guessing a lot of people it's it's a fairly new idea what would you say are some of the pros and cons of trying to do personas in-house versus getting just a third party, either a peer or someone else to look at the data. So that way you don't have that sort of internal bias of who you want your personas to be versus who they actually are.
1: I would say that anytime you are doing an exercise like branding or like persona development that requires some sort of objective reflection uh-huh. on, on your audience and your offerings, if you can, it's very, very helpful and important to find a third party to help you through those exercises. Because you're right. I mean, we we all have our own biases about the institutions that we work for. And we all carry our own observations and thoughts mm-hmm. about the type of parents who who engage with our schools and the types of students. And so, In terms of pros, I mean, it's definitely faster to go through the exercise internally and and it will save you some money. But I think the downside is it's hard to have that objectivity if it's not truly grounded in data and research that's been done on your target audiences and on the the families that have been in your pipeline. It's hard to be objective and factual when you're developing Mm -hmm. these personas and you make a lot of assumptions. And there is that equity lens that you want to be really careful More. about. I would advocate, if possible, for having someone walk you through that exercise externally. If that isn't a possibility, I think there are some essential questions that you can ask. You could even try just surveying students or families that have gone through your admission process recently. You can do that very easily, the SurveyMonkey or a similar mm-hmm. tool, to try to get a read on a smaller scale on you know, what are the things that they care about, what were their concerns going through the process, what led them to start looking at schools in the first place, And that can at least help you to help with the psychographic piece. If you're not capturing demographic information in your admission process or your enrollment process, there's an opportunity to do that as well. So you can get a real profile of what your families look like and not an anecdotal one based on what you think you remember from the admission cycle. So it, it is possible to do sort of a lightweight persona development exercise internally But the best case scenario is to have someone who's completely objective either just handle the data piece of it or have someone support you with both.
0: When you're talking about the psychographic pieces, what are some examples of those that someone might already have or could collect easily with a question or two on a survey? What are some good starting points there?
1: So one of the things that we see a lot, there are a couple of things, you know, we look at what do people care about and what are they interested in? And so a lot of our families tend to care a lot about more kind of progressive education. You know, these are families who the rote memorization and frequent testing that happens in our local public schools don't really work for them. And so they're looking for something that's more differentiated, a little bit more custom. I, I refer to it as bespoke education education. Uh, they're They're looking for a very customized student experience. They're also looking for a community, not just for their children, but for them. In the D.C. area, a lot of families, they're not going to churches as much. They're not joining country clubs. The schools that their children attend are extensions of their communities. The whole family is joining the school. It's not just the child or their children those are the things that typically fall into the, what do you care about? And so I would say, you know, a question for that would be, what was the number one reason for you starting to search for schools? You know, what, what was that concern? What was that pain point? And, and give them the opportunity to answer that. Or if you have a good list of sort of common things, which we definitely have just after several admission cycles, things like, Bullying, you know, not enough differentiation in education, you can give them some multiple choice options as well. And then, in terms of things that our families or our parents tend to be interested in, a lot of them are very interested in technology and new and emerging technologies. That's another one where you could do sort of a multiple choice list based on anecdotal data, or you can allow them to fill it in depending on the number of people that you're talking to and just how manageable it is to. Handle the number of open ended questions. People who are very interested in what's new and novel, those are people who tend to be most drawn to schools like Foothill. You know, they want something that's different from the status quo.
0: We're looking ahead here a little bit. What are you looking forward to most in moving to the different seat at the table?
1: I am really excited to formalize something that I feel that I've been doing for the past few years, which is just sharing things that I've tried that mm-hmm. have worked and not worked, <laughs> honestly, with colleagues on a broader scale. You know, I, I've always found myself, even in my early days at Flint Hill, jumping on message boards and Facebook groups and emails and phone calls with other people in my position and, and admissions offices in the area. To talk shop and answer questions and share best practices and things that I've experienced and to have the opportunity to do that on a broader scale and to serve a broader range of schools. I am excited to get more exposure to the public school arena, to charter schools, mm-hmm. boarding schools. You know, there's a range of, of k 12 l schools out there. And there's a lot of wisdom and knowledge to be shared. One thing that's kind of interesting to me is that in this position, I've always had to answer questions from people about like, oh, do you teach there? Or no. people internally saying, you know, you should teach a class, teach your book or an English class. And I've always really kind of run away from that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what's cool about this opportunity with Niche is that, I mean, that that's really what it is. You know, it's an opportunity to step into that sort of educator role in a different Mm -hmm. way. And that is also something that's really, really cool.
0: Yeah. And it's fun because you're playing the part of student and educator at the same time. You're you're learning. I feel like I've, I've had 10 years of experience in the last two years just getting to see, you know, oh, here's how things are being done at a large flagship. You know, here's how things are being done at a community college. Here's how things are being done at a K-12 in California. You know, you get to see so many things you wouldn't get to see and experience at a single institution. It's a lot of fun.
1: It's amazing. I'm really, really excited
0: about it. Well, I'm excited to be, uh, to be working with you and learning from you here. As we wrap up here, what are some ways people can reach out to you and if they want to continue the conversation and, and keep learning from you?
1: So I am a huge, huge fan of LinkedIn. My LinkedIn extension is Angela M. Brown. So please feel free to reach out, send me a message, send me a mm-hmm. connection request, and I will gladly accept. I love meeting people in the industry and asking and answering questions, grabbing virtual coffee. If you're in the DC mm-hmm. area, you know, we can have a nice socially distanced real time coffee in 3d (laughs) together and i'm also on twitter i haven't been as active recently going through the 100 days of may at work as we call it and into june but my handle there is angela m brown as well
0: well angela thank you so much for making time here this morning
1: thank you